And this evening, we are in the book of Isaiah in chapter 8. If you'd like to go ahead and open up there. And really, Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9 are all sort of connected. It seems like they are all really one uh, sort of grouping of writings from the prophet Isaiah talking to King Ahaz uh, in response to the fear and the concern that Israel's or Judah's enemies were coming against them, conspiring together against them to attack them. And so uh, we looked at the first part of uh, that message to Judah last week here on Wednesday night, Isaiah chapter 7. Tonight we're in Isaiah chapter 8. Next week, of course, God willing, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9. But really, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 are, are one message uh, from God through the prophet Isaiah to the king and to the people uh, there in Judah. And so we start here in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 8. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Meir Shalal Hash Baz. Now, this is the name of his son, or the name that he is going to name his son. You read in verse 2, I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of uh, Jeberachiah. Verse 3, then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Meir Shalal. Hash Baz. And so when he says in verse 1, take a large scroll, this would have been likely a leather parchment at this time, uh, and write on it with a man's pen concerning, and this is the, the name that God is telling him to name his son before his son is born, before his son is actually even conceived. God is telling him, name your son this and write this name on this scroll uh, and then take it and, and post it. This will be a faithful witness to record uh, so that the people will see this. And when they see this, they will know uh, that God is going to help you. The name of the son actually means, and most of you have this in your uh, footnotes of your Bible, speed the spoil and hasten the booty. Speed the spoil and hasten the booty. Uh, Quite a name to stick on this poor kid. I I wouldn't advise naming your child uh, this name, but this is what God told Isaiah to name his child, uh, Meher Shalal Hash Baz, because his name was to be a witness, a testimony to God's people, that God was going to uh, defend them and God was going to basically uh, take out their enemies, the ones who they were afraid of. It's interesting that his other son, had a name that was also meaningful. If you remember back in chapter 7 and verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, that would be the king of Judah, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct, aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Sheer Jashub literally means a remnant shall return. So the prophet named his children names that were uh, more than just average names. They were messages from God to the people, to the nation. 
uh, a remnant shall return because God always has his remnant. And even after uh, even the Babylonian captivity, a remnant indeed did return. We look at Israel today, 1948, the Zionist movement. A remnant has returned after thousands of years to the Holy Land. God always has his remnant. And so he said, name your son, a remnant shall return. And then name your second son, speed the spoil and hasten the booty, indicating that uh, uh, the king of Assyria was going to come down and uh, basically eliminate their enemies, Samaria and Syria, who they were scared of and they were worried about. You, you may recall in chapter 7 last week, in verse 1, uh, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, uh, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim or Samaria or Israel. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And so they were afraid of their enemies who were coming to attack them and who uh, were threatening their very existence. As a matter of fact, they wanted to depose the king. They wanted to depose King Ahaz and put a puppet king on uh, the throne of Judah. And again, uh, if you've been here for our study, Ahaz was a very wicked king. He even offered his own children as human sacrifices to the foreign gods of the lands. And so he had good reason to be afraid, but God was going to save Judah anyways. In spite of the wickedness of King Ahaz, uh, uh, Ahaz's son would be one of the greatest kings ever. King Hezekiah was King Ahaz's son. So you had Uzziah was a good king. Jotham was a good king. Uh, Ahaz was a wicked king, the son of Jotham, grandson of Uriah. And then, and then Ahaz had a son named Hezekiah, who was one of the greatest kings. Uh, and we're going to read more about Hezekiah later in the prophecy of Isaiah, later in this book. So Assyria is going to come quickly. They're going to uh, seize the booty and the spoil of, uh, of, of Judah's uh, enemies. The remnant will one day return. These names have meanings. Now, most of the names of the Israelite children were names that included the name of God, either Yahweh, Jehovah, with the Yah, uh, or El for Elohim, which is another name or title for God. And so they would name their children. Like, for example, Isaiah's name means Yeshaiah. Uh, Yeshaiah uh, is literally uh, Jehovah is salvation or Yahweh is salvation. Isaiah's name in the Hebrew is Yeshaiah, and it means Jehovah is salvation or Yahweh is salvation. So they gave their children names that had deep, significant biblical meanings attributed to God and the character and nature of God. Uh, of course, Jesus' name, Yeshua, or Jesus, is the salvation from Jehovah or Yahweh, the salvation of Yahweh, Yeshua, uh, the name Jesus. Uh, we read in verse 2 here of chapter 8, Uriah the priest uh, as a witness, and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Uh, Uriah means Jehovah is my light, or the Lord is my light. Zechariah means Jehovah, or the Lord remembers, and so forth. And so these names have meanings. Uh, the name Michael means who is like the Lord, but it's not that uh, someone named Michael is like the Lord. It's a question mark at the end. Michael 
is who is like the Lord? Question mark. In other words, no one's like the Lord. He's he he's great. He's awesome. He's powerful. He's mighty. Who is like the Lord? Micaiah. The name Micaiah is Micaiah. Is who is like the Lord? Uh, and and Michael, uh, Michael Michael is is who is like uh, Elohim or who is like God. So names had meanings. They named their children meaningful names so that they could have something to live up to. And I I think it's good when Christians uh, name their children after biblical names. I think it's something for them to look up to, something to live up to, something to uh, 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 strive towards. Now he continues here in chapter 8 and verse 3. Isaiah says, Then I went to the prophetess. Interesting, his wife was apparently a prophetess. He was a prophet of God. His wife uh, was a godly woman, a prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Haz uh, Hash Baz. And so uh, the marriage bed, of course, is, is undefiled. Sex is... Uh, uh, something natural and pure and beautiful if it's inside the confines of a monogamous heterosexual marriage that God has ordained. Uh, the marriage bed is undefiled, but adulterers and fornicators God will judge. The New Testament tells us in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's interesting that in verse 18, we're told in uh, verse 18 of chapter 8, Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me we are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in my, Mount Zion. So Isaiah is saying, here am I. Here's the children whom the Lord has given me. His children had monumental, special names, messages actually. His children were actually message, messages from God to the people to encourage them. And he says, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel. The children, the family. The godly seed uh, is, is to be a, a, uh, a sign and a wonder to the world for God. And God is still seeking uh, a, a godly offspring among his people. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'll read this to you real quick. When Moses was giving the final book of the law here, Deuteronomy chapter 6, here's the admonition to the families and to the parents regarding the children. Verse 1, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you. Notice, he says, you and your son, and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house 
and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so uh, many uh, Jews and many Christians today, in response to this scripture, uh, they put scriptures up on their walls. They have scriptures hanging on their walls. And this is where God uh, encourages and admonishes us as his people to learn God's word, to keep God's word, to teach our children to keep God's word, our grandchildren to, teach, uh, to keep God's word. And then we are to literally keep them in front of us all the time. Uh, bind them as a sign on your hand so that you would see the Word of God on your hand. Put them as frontlets before your eyes so that you would uh, have that before you, always on your mind, in your hand, whatever you do, whatever you think would be filtered through the Word of God. And then put them up on your house. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Word of God everywhere as an encouragement, as a reminder, as a teaching so that you can be reminded and you could teach uh, especially the little ones. The New Testament tells us to train up our children uh, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Proverbs tells us that if you train uh, your child in the ways of the Lord, when they're old, they will not depart. And, of course, the enemy is after our kids, especially in the public schools here in the state of California. Uh, you, you, have to, you, have to really, you have to really be engaged with your children so, to make sure that you're helping them to navigate those challenging waters as godless men and women in Sacramento are passing laws uh, through the educational system and, and forcing all of this garbage on the children uh, in the, the, the public schools. And so uh, parents have to be actively involved in training up and raising up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And then when they are, not, when, when they are old, they will not depart in verse 4, he continues, chapter 8, verse 4, he says, For before the child, this child may hear shalal hashbaz, before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father, my mother, the riches of Damascus, that was the capital city of Syria, one of the enemies that were threatening to come against them, and the spoil of Samaria, that was the capital of the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, Samaria was their capital, so the riches of Damascus of Syria, the spoil of Samaria of Israel, will be taken away before the king of Assyria. And so the Lord is encouraging the people. God has your back. He, Isaiah is telling them. He's going to defend you. You don't have to make uh, ungodly alliances with God's enemies. Because Ahaz, as you remember from last week, was taking God's money out of the house of God, out of the treasury of God, to go and to buy off, as it were, the Assyrian army and the Assyrian king to come and fight their enemies uh, for them instead of trusting in the Lord. And in the end, Assyria did come after Syria. Assyria came over from, uh, Assyria is out by Babylon, which is out by modern-day Iraq and uh, that area. Persia was, of, of course, Iran, modern-day Iran. But they were coming all the way over from modern-day Iraq into the Holy Land uh, to attack Syria, to attack the, the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, 
Uh, but in the end, they didn't stop there. They actually came against Jerusalem too. So they betrayed King Ahaz because Ahaz tried to strike a deal. Instead of trusting in the Lord and encouraging the people to trust in God, as Isaiah the prophet was telling him to do so, he was trying to buy uh, uh, the protection from a wicked king and a wicked nation. But he's saying even this baby that is just being named, that is just being conceived, before this baby is able to talk, is able to even cry out, my father and my mother, just a couple of years old, uh, the enemy's already going to be removed. The one that you are so worried about is, all, is already going to be taken down and taken out, and you don't have to fear them. Now he continues in verse 5. He says, the Lord spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramalia's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria with all his glory, and he will go up over all the channels. So, again, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly. Shiloh was a little gentle uh, brook, like a rippling brook there uh, in Judah, in Jerusalem. Very peaceful, very quiet, uh, flowing slowly. Not a big river, just a little uh, rivulet or, or a little spring or uh, a, a little brook. And because they were refusing to trust the peace of Shiloh or to trust in the Lord and his peace and in uh, his protection, and they were going to reach out to Assyria to come and to defend them, God says, okay, because you've refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, but you'd rather rejoice in resin and Ramalia's son. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river Euphrates, is what he's referring to, uh, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria, and all his glory, and he will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. Verse 8, he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings, and will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel, or O God uh, is with us. So they rejected the protection of the Lord. They didn't trust in the Lord. They hired the king of Assyria instead of trusting the Lord to take care of the enemies. And he says, okay, so this, this, this river of the Euphrates is going to come and wash all the way up to Judah. You think it's just going to go wash out your enemies? And of course, this is a word picture, an allegory. He says that they're going to come all the way to you. They're not going to stop in Samaria. They're not going to stop up in Damascus, Syria. The king of Assyria is going to come to Judah and threaten Jerusalem, which indeed uh, later the king of Assyria did exactly that uh, to threaten Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, when he was the king over Judah. The bottom line is, is, is who are you trusting in? Which one are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the Lord and his peaceful ways? and his protection, and his kindness, and his love, and his mercy? Or are you seeking alliances with the world in order to have uh, worldly uh, defenders, and, and, and worldly treaties, and alliances with idolatrous nations, and, and pagan kings, and pagan people, nations that worship idols, and offer their children as sacrifices to the false gods? 
He says, they're going to fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And you remember in, in, in chapter 7, verse 14, Emmanuel was to be the name of the child that would be born to the virgin, a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, the Messiah who would, who would come, whose uh, name would mean Yeshua, Jehovah's salvation, or the salvation of Jehovah. Emmanuel means God is with us. So Jesus is the salvation of God, the Lord. He is the salvation of the Lord, the Word made flesh, personified in the flesh, and He is God with us. And so it's interesting that Isaiah employs this here in chapter 8. He'll fill the breadth of your land, and he's calling the land, O Emmanuel, the land of Judah, the land of Israel. God is with us. And uh, the Lord has his eye over his land. He still has his eye over his land. Some of you have been to Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem, been to Israel. Safest place in the world. You think, well, what about all the Muslims? What about all the Palestinians and all their rockets? And, you know, uh, you just feel safe when you're there, especially in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, not only is the Israeli military the best in the world, their intelligence services the best in the world, their technology the best in the world, uh, but you just feel like the Lord is there protecting his land. Matter of fact, most people, when you go to Israel, I was there, I think, 13 or 14 days uh, leading the tour there in 2015. You just don't want to go home. You just kind of want to call home and say, just send me all my stuff. I'm going to stay here in Jerusalem. Uh, because you just feel like the Lord is there. It's a holy land. It's the promised land. And it's the land that Jesus Christ is going to return to one day to set up his kingdom. And he will rule and reign from Jerusalem for 1,000 years and then reign uh, forever and ever and ever uh, after that 1,000 years. And so God has his eye on Jerusalem. This is the, the, the Lord's land, the land of Israel, the land that is governed uh, by God. God has put his name uh, upon his people and upon his land. He continues in verse 9, Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. He repeats it twice. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For Emmanuel, again, this time translated, God is with us. But it's the same uh, word, Emmanuel. God is with us. For God is with us. Uh, and so he's saying, uh, you're going to be broken in pieces, those who are coming against Israel, you who are from the far countries that are coming to attack my people. God is going to defend his people. He's going to defend the nation of Israel, always has, always will. He's telling them, you could gird yourselves, you can bring in all of your uh, uh, armies and your armaments and your horsemen and your weapons of war and everything else. Go ahead and do it. Gird yourselves, but you're going to come down here. You're going to be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, you're going to be broken in pieces. Uh, take counsel together, uh, make your plots, make your schemes, make your conspiracies, uh, but it's going to come to nothing. He says, speak your words, make your plans, but it's not going to stand because God says uh, God is with us. God is going to defend us and God is going to defend his land. And indeed he did. He defended them against Syria. He defended them against Israel the ten northern tribes, and he defended them against Assyria, who came after them later. Now he continues in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, 
Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, some translations have that word conspiracy translated as confederacy. Conspiracy is actually a better translation of the word, but it's the same idea that there was a confederacy that was forged against them. There was a conspiracy to take them over and take them out. And, and so he's saying, uh, um, you know, basically don't, don't, don't fear them. Don't worry about what the people are saying. Do not say there's a conspiracy or a confederacy against us concerning all that this people, the people there were calling a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. For the Lord of hosts, him shall you fear or hallow or revere or sanctify or set apart. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So he's, he's saying, do not uh, worry. I'm going to defend you. Don't worry. I'm going to be here for you. Don't worry. You're my people. I love you. I'm going to protect you. This is my land. This is my city, the city of the great king, the city of Jerusalem, the eternal city of God, Jerusalem. And he's saying, so don't worry about conspiracies. Don't worry about the enemies who are uh, confederating against you, aligning themselves, allying themselves together to attack you. Don't worry about them. Don't be troubled by them. Don't fear them. Rather, fear the Lord. Rather, revere the Lord. Hallow the Lord, he says. Sanctify the Lord. And the Bible tells us that that's always the case for God's people. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's better to fear God than to fear man. In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 6, I'll read this to you. Solomon says this, In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. And so the fear of the Lord should lead us to act in faith, and we should hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves if we are his people called by his name as we are today. You're a Christian, I presume, or you wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night illegally meeting and breaking the law to come to church. I assume I'm talking to Christians here tonight. And so the fear of the Lord uh, is good for us. It's healthy for us to fear God and to hate evil. As a matter of fact, Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13 says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. This is the Lord speaking. Uh, God hates per a perverted mouth. I mean, how could we sit and tolerate so much profanity that we become numb to it? We are, we are so numb to the profanity and the blasphemy that it does, we are so desensitized to it because of Hollywood, because of movies, TV, radio, and everything else that it just it doesn't even phase us anymore. Uh, but, you know, God forbid that Christians would speak perverted words out of our mouths, that we would speak things that are offensive to God. and God forbid that we would ever use Jesus' name as a curse word or even God's name uh, as a curse word, as, as, as is so common in our culture. Didn't used to be that way. But but it is certainly today. And, and so the fear of the Lord, if you say you love the Lord, and by the way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
Uh, wisdom uh, begins by recognizing who God is and who you are in light of who God is. He's holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's sinless. Uh, he's powerful. He's awesome. He's, 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 he's everything that we are not, and we are wicked and sinful and fallen. Uh, and so it's the wise man who understands that. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the first step in uh, wisdom. And if you fear the Lord, then you are to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. And so um, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And we as his people, if we say we're his people, we also ought to fear God and keep his commandments. Remember, uh, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says the takeaway is this, fear God and keep his commandments. And that, that's, that's the end of the matter. Uh, the whole point in life, the whole purpose in life, Solomon was saying, the wisest man, the richest man, the most powerful man uh, of, his, uh, of his age and, and one of the most powerful kings in the history of the world. And he's saying, this, this is it. Fear God, keep his commandments. And that's, that's the bottom line uh, for the children of God. Now, Jesus warned us in the New Testament about this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 27, I'll read this to you here. Jesus said, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." The Bible tells us that the fear of man brings a snare. And so oftentimes we don't live out our Christian life because we're afraid of people. We're afraid to tell them we're Christians. We're afraid to let our light shine. We're afraid to invite them to church. We're afraid to pray in public. We're afraid to pray over our meal in a restaurant. Because we're afraid of what people think of us. We're afraid to read our Bibles outside of church if we're around non-believers. And uh, Jesus says you've got it all backwards. He's saying, don't fear man. Don't fear man who can kill the body. Yeah, they can kill the body, but they can't touch your soul. The soul is who you really are. Your soul lives in your body. Your body's going to die. My body's going to die. That's not who I really am. Who I really am is my spirit or my soul that dwells within my body. And man can't touch my soul. The devil can't touch my soul. They could kill my body, kill your body perhaps, but they cannot kill your soul. And Jesus says, rather fear God. Fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And we get it reversed. Rather than fearing God, we fear man. And then we act as cowards because we're afraid of people. Matter of fact, there's a, lot, there's a lot of churches shut down right now. Probably 99% of the churches in California or more are shut down right now. Why? Because they're afraid of man. They fear the governor. They fear the health department. They feel the, fear the sheriff's department. They fear the police department. They fear that something bad is going to happen and the insurance policy may not cover it uh, because we're breaking the law by meeting against the governor's executive orders. But we should fear God. We should obey God rather than man. It's just a tragedy to me, and I'm not judging any other churches. Let every 
church and every man be fully convinced in his own mind. And if God's not calling you to open your church doors, then by all means, keep your churches shut. But we shouldn't be operating out of a place of fear of man. We should fear God. We're living in the last days. These are the days we should be standing strong, for the fear of man brings a snare, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what's the worst they could do? Lock us up? I mean, nobody gets locked up anymore. The jails are empty in California. Maybe they're making room for the Christians by letting all the real criminals out to make space for the rest of us. But even that, we'll just start a church in prison if, if that's what happens. But I'm, I'm serious. There's just nothing to be afraid of. We, we, you know, if we're going to fear, let's fear God and walk uh, in holiness and in the fear of the Lord. Not, not the fear of man. The fear of man uh, brings a snare. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, I'll read this to you. This is New Testament. Peter says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood or the brethren, fear God, and honor the king. And so we are to be those as his people who trust in and fear and revere the Lord. Honor the Lord. Give him his proper place. He's the God who gives us breath. The God who, whose breath, our breath is in his very hand. Daniel told uh, the king there in the book of, of Daniel, the, the pagan king, when the handwriting on the wall appeared. And the king wanted Daniel to come and interpret the writing. Many, many tekel you farsen. God was going to judge the king of Babylon and take away his kingdom from him shortly with the Medes and the Persians. And, uh, and Daniel says, the God uh, who, who put your very breath in your lungs, who, who, who you know, your breath is in his hands, uh, you do not uh, reverence and you do not fear because he was using the holy uh, implements of the temple of Israel to party and to get drunk and to have a big uh, sexual orgy and, and, and uh, just a big party with God's holy instruments. And he's saying, you don't even fear the God who, who puts your breath in your, in your lungs, whose hand is, is, is uh, the breath of every living thing, Job said. Fear God, honor the Lord, respect the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, Peter says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance or before you were saved, the things you used to do before you were saved, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. And so we are to walk in obedience to the Lord. We are to walk in the fear of the Lord. We are to seek to please God rather than man. For what can man do to us? The Lord is our defender. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter says, but sanctify or set apart as holy the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and 
fear. This is the New Testament. This is not the Old Testament. And when you think of fear, think of just the holiness of God and who you are in light of who God is and who I am in light of who He is. Sanctify the Lord. Set Him apart. Make Him holy and and try and live in a way that is a proper representation of who God is to a godless world. How are people going to know God if we're not letting them see God in our lives? If we're no different than all of the unbelievers, then what hope is there for this broken, fallen, messed up world? People have to see there's something different about you. And if you're born again, there will be something different about you. You will not be able to live the same way you used to live. You just won't be able to do it anymore. You'll be miserable in your sin if you are truly born again. And you will want to do the things that please the Father. Even as Jesus said, I always do the things that please my Father. Why? Because Christ is in us, the hope of glory through the person of the Holy Spirit, if we are His children, if we are His church, if we are truly Christians. He continues back in Isaiah 8 and verse 14. He says, he will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and they shall fall and be broken, be snared and be taken. And so he's telling him, don't worry about the people. Don't fear the people. Honor the Lord. Fear the Lord. Let the Lord be your dread, not man, not kings, not governors, not governments. Let the Lord be your dread. Let him be your fear. Trust in the Lord. And he will be to you a sanctuary or a house, a place of refuge, a holy abode. A place you could run into, David would say in the Psalms, and be safe. Run into the Lord. Run into the name of the Lord and you will be safe, the psalmist declares. He will be a sanctuary to you, to you, but he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble, and they shall fall and be broken and be snared and be taken." And so uh, those who were not trusting the Lord, he's speaking now to the remnant, the remnant who were trusting the Lord, those who would not trust the Lord, those who were not going to turn to the Lord, those who were not going to obey the Lord or follow the Lord. He says, although he's going to be a safe haven for you, a holy abode for you to enter into and be safe in the times of distress, uh, he is going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense uh, to Israel and to those in Jerusalem. Uh, and indeed, he is. It's interesting that the Bible often talks about God as a rock, that the Lord is a rock, uh, the rock of our salvation, the psalmist says, uh, the rock of ages. Uh, the, the Bible tells us about God. He is called uh, a rock. Now, in the New Testament, the rock is further defined for us as Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 1, I'll read this to you. Paul the Apostle says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And that should be our prayer also for all people, but especially for God's people, Israel, the Jews. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, 
but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, where am I here? For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all believers. I'm in Romans. I'm so sorry. You were about to shout out at me, weren't you? See what happens when you try and cover too many scriptures and what? <laughs> I apologize. We'll be back there in Romans 9 in a minute. Uh, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I apologize. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So this is very interesting. The Old Testament speaks about God being a rock over and over and over, especially in the book of Psalms, God being a rock. Uh, a, a mighty fortress is our God, a rock, uh, a, a, a strong tower, a safe haven for his people. And now he's saying that Jesus Christ is the rock. Verse 4 again, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And now he's talking about Moses, he's talking about the fathers, the, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt to go into the promised land. And you remember that Moses... Moses struck the rock because the people were thirsty. They were in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, wandering in circles literally for 40 years uh, because of unbelief. They were afraid of the giants in the land. So God said, fine, you're scared of the giants in the land. Instead of trusting me, going across the Jordan River, I was going to give you victory. This whole generation is going to die off in the wilderness uh, because you did not believe me. Only jo Joshua and Caleb believed the other Ten uh, spies of the twelve came back with an evil report. And so he says, then this whole generation is going to die in the wilderness. So then they had to wander, wander in the wilderness for 40 years, as you know. And there was a time when they were complaining against God because there was no water in the middle of the desert. This is the Egyptian desert in the Sinai Peninsula, one of the driest places on earth, certainly in the Middle East. And, uh, and, and so God told Moses, strike the rock. And then water will come forth from the rock. And Moses took his staff, the same staff by which he performed the miracles with Pharaoh in Egypt and parted the Red Sea. And he took the staff, Moses did, and he struck the rock. And the rock broke open and this underground river came out from underneath the rock. And then all the people drank, all the animals and livestock, whatever animals they had, drank from the water. Uh, and then there was a second time, as you may recall, when the people were complaining again uh, about not having enough water. And God told Moses the second time, do not strike the rock. He struck the rock the first time. He says, the second time you are to speak to the rock and water will come forth from the rock. But speak to the rock, God told Moses. But Moses was so fed up with the people. And you really can't blame him if you read uh, the story there in the book of Exodus. And you see in the book of Numbers and how difficult these people were. They were never happy, always murmuring and complaining about Moses and about God. Many times they wanted to stone Moses and kill him. Uh, because they were unhappy with him. And so the second time, Moses says, do I have to strike this rock again a second time to give you water? Uh, you, you, you wicked people, you stiff-necked 
people. Moses was so angry at them. And so he disobeyed God, you'll recall, and he struck the rock the second time, which he was not to do so. He was to speak to the rock the second time, and the water would have come forth. And because of this, because he was angry, he lost his temper, and he disobeyed God, and Moses represented God to the people. The people thought that God was angry with them because Moses was clearly angry with them. Water did come out of the rock, but Moses was not permitted to enter into the promised land because of his disobedience in not speaking to the rock. He directly disobeyed God by striking the rock the second time. Moses really probably didn't have any idea that that rock was symbolic of who? Of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is telling us. That rock was Christ, the rock that the living water comes forth from. Jesus had to be struck one time when he was smitten on the cross. I will smite the shepherd, Zechariah 13, God the Father speaking, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus hung on the cross and cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he hung there and the sins of the world were put, put upon him, and he was smitten. He was struck for the sins of the world. But he will never be smitten again. He will never be struck again. He's died once for all time, for all sin for all eternity, and now Jesus doesn't have to be struck for the living water to come forth from him into our lives. You just speak to Jesus, and then his living water comes forth into your life and mine. The rock is Christ. In 1 Corinthians and chapter 1, in verse 21, we read this about Jesus being the rock. For since in the wisdom of God... The world through wisdom did not come to know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, or a rock of stumbling. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So here we are, he says, we preach Christ crucified, crucified, buried and raised on the third day. This is the gospel message. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. You cannot improve it. We are just called to preach it, the cross of Christ. And when you preach the cross of Christ, it forces man to make a decision to deal with Jesus and to answer uh, uh, for how you're going to respond to this message of this Savior who was willing to suffer and to die, who was perfect, who was sinless, who was wonderful, who was beautiful, who was meek and lowly and humble of heart, and who took your sins upon himself on the cross of Calvary and died for you and was buried for you and was raised on the third day. And so the, the gospel, when we preach the cross and we preach Christ crucified, uh, it forces people to have to make a decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? This one who died for you, you're going to reject that free gift, that free offer of salvation. And he says to the Jews, uh, Christ crucified is a stumbling block. Number one, the Jews did not believe that God had an only begotten son. Uh, they had a problem with that aspect of who Jesus was, still do. Go to Jerusalem today and the religious Jews, they won't even use the name Jesus. It's so funny. They will not use the name Jesus or Yeshua, the religious Jews. They call him that man or they call him 
this man. And you could read it in the book of Acts. That's what they called Jesus in the book of Acts 2,000 years ago. They say, you listen to this man or you preach that man, but they would not use his name. And in Jerusalem today, the religious Jews will not even say the name Yeshua or the, say the name Jesus. They say, you worship that man. You worship this man because they don't believe that Jesus is God. And they don't believe that God would die on the cross, that God would actually come take on a human body and die on a cross. How could God die? So to the Jews, it is a stumbling block. To the Greeks or the Gentiles, it's foolishness. You think of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all these great, brilliant thinkers uh, in, in, in Greece in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd century B.C., and they, they, you know, the, the people who think they're smart, the people who are educated, the people who are into philosophy and into psychology and into theology and all of these other ologies, uh, they have a problem with the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. They think it's just too simple. It's too basic. Even a child could understand Christ crucified and raised, and it can't be that simple. It can't be that easy. It has to be more complex, more difficult. And so to the Jews, Jesus Christ and the cross or a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles or the Greeks, they think of the cross as foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so we all had to deal with Christ. We all had to answer uh, uh, to how we were going to respond to who Jesus is and what he did for us. In Romans chapter 9, this is where I uh, turned to earlier accidentally. Romans chapter 9 and verse 32, we read this. He says, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone or stone of stumbling or rock of stumbling. They stumbled at the stumbling stone, verse 33 of Romans 9, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, or Jerusalem, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. But Jesus is still a stumbling stone. He's a rock of offense. People are so offended by Christians. My goodness, you could be a practicing witch. You could be a Satanist. You could be a Buddhist, a Hindu. You could be an atheist. But if you're a born-again Christian, you're not tolerated in our society. Everything, and you could be transgender. You could do whatever you want to do in this world, and everybody applauds you and says, oh, it's wonderful, wonderful. But if you're a born-again Christian who's out to preach the gospel, who's out to see uh, people saved from their sins, you are hated, you are despised, and you are rejected. And it shouldn't surprise us. They hated Jesus. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you first. For a servant is not greater than his master, and a student is not greater than his teacher. I tell you this, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. But if they receive my words, they will receive your words also. So Jesus comes and he divides people. He says, I did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. I came to turn members of the household against one another. He says, you know, mother and father uh, will hate you and son and daughter and brother and sister and husband and wife for my name's sake because they hated him first. He's a stumbling stone. He's a rock of offense. Jesus offends people, but whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, Jesus is that rock. One more scripture in Matthew chapter 21 
And this is Jesus' commentary on Psalm chapter 118. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42, Jesus says this, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder or to dust. So here, once and for all, we can definitively say that when the Bible speaks about God being a rock, clearly the Bible is talking about Jesus Christ. He applies this to himself. He's quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm filled with messianic prophecies of the coming Messiah. And Jesus is saying, this is me. Have you never read? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, the main stone, the one that was rejected is the one that we need to build the whole uh, uh, building, the whole temple, the chief cornerstone that you would uh, use to build the rest of the structure. And it was rejected. And he says, and this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And then he tells them to the Jews, the nation of Israel, that were rejecting him overwhelmingly, especially the religious and political leaders of the Jewish nation. He says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, from, from Israel, the nation of Israel, and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That would be uh, uh, the rest of the world and Jews, if they want to believe. Jews and Greeks can believe on Jesus, of course. But national Israel still rejects Jesus Christ as their Messiah and as their Savior. And then he says, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him uh, to powder. And so everybody has to deal with the, the Jesus Christ as the rock of offense, as the stumbling stone. Jesus doesn't leave you really a way out. He says, you're either for me or you are against me. There's no middle ground. You have to deal with Jesus. Now, if you fall on him to be saved, you fall on your face before him, you fall on your knees before him. You cast yourself upon his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace. Then you're broken. And that's a good thing. We need to be broken. We're a mess. We need to fall on Jesus and we will be broken. However, he'll put us back together and make us better than we ever could have been on our own. He'll make us into new creations, new creatures. He's going to transform us by the renewing of our mind. He's going to put his Holy Spirit within us uh, who will be with us until the end of time uh, and, and, and teach us how to live a life that's pleasing to God. But we have to fall upon this stone, the cornerstone, and indeed be broken before God. And then God uh, is the one who holds us up and puts our lives back together again. However, he says, on whomever it falls, this stumbling stone, it will grind him to pieces. So if you're prideful, if you're arrogant, if you refuse to humble yourself, if you don't think you need a Savior, if you do not think that you're a sinner, and so why do I need Jesus? I don't think I'm that bad. I'm not as bad as the next guy. Well, then Jesus is ultimately, rather than you falling on him and being broken and him saving you, he's going to crush you to pieces. He's going to crush you to dust. Daniel chapter 2 speaks about that rock that became a mountain that took over the whole earth and crushed all of the empires before it to dust and the, and the wind blew those empires away. Ultimately, 
we all will have to answer for what we did with God's Son. That's going to be the question God's going to ask at the great white throne. What did you do with my Son? He's going to open up the books. The books are recording everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, and everything you've ever thought for your whole life. So there's going to be uh, none that are innocent. Everyone is going to be guilty before a holy God. Everything's being recorded. Uh, and, and so those who are at the great, great white throne judgment, they're going to be judged by the things that are in the books, the deeds, their sins that they've committed against God in word, in thought, and in deed. And then there's going to be another book that's there, and the book's going to be open. <clears throat> and it's the book of the Lamb of Life. And whoever's name is not found in the book of the Lamb, the book of the life of the Lamb, is going to be taken and cast into eternal fire because Jesus Christ is the only way out of this place. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way. That's why people get so offended at Jesus. They don't like that. They want to believe that they can either earn their way, work their way into salvation, or they don't think they're as bad uh, to, to deserve to go to hell. But they just don't understand how holy and righteous and perfect God is. So we're going to have to answer to Jesus one day. And I hope that all of you have trusted Christ as your Savior. It's, it's, it's such a simple thing. Uh, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Believe on the name of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You just have to trust the Lord. You have to surrender your life to Christ. And why wouldn't you want to? Jesus is so kind and so merciful and so loving and so generous and so patient with us and so compassionate. He truly indeed is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. Back in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16, continuing, he says, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And so the Lord is encouraging um, the prophet to wait on the Lord. He says, I am going to wait on the Lord. Uh, Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3, beautiful uh, promise here, says this, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. When your world is falling apart, remember God is still on the throne. And, and just trust in the Lord. He's faithful. Do not turn to the left or to the right in your time of trouble. Just lean on God. Fall upon Jesus, and he will see you through. He will deliver you uh, from your enemies. Verse 19 says this, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, the law and the testimony, it is because there is no light in them, just darkness. So basically, there were those who were saying, go to the mediums, go to the witches, go to the warlocks, go to the wizards, go to the priests and the priestesses, go to the shamans and the medicine men, go to those and, and ask them for wisdom. 
and, and, and he's, God is saying, should not a people seek their God? These are the people of Israel who were saying this. The people of Judah were saying this because there was so much witchcraft and pagan idolatry, uh, much like our world today, much like America today. So much witchcraft and Satanism and, and practice of the occult and New Age and on and on it goes. And uh, he says, should they not seek, uh, 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 people seek their God? Should, sh- should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? And so uh, this, is, this is an issue of darkness versus light. Christians have no business being involved in witchcraft. Christians have no business being involved in astrology. Christians really need to be very, very careful uh, even with yoga because if you study the roots of yoga, it comes from Hinduism. It's a 2,500-year-old tradition of meditation in order to gain enlightenment so that you could become an enlightened guru and so that you could have contact with the universe, with the spiritual realm. And so you have to be very careful. These things have bled into our culture. I mean, there's, and, and I'm not saying you can't practice yoga. I'm not, I'm not standing here saying this this evening, but you need to be careful. You need to study this stuff for yourself and see what you're getting yourself into. Do not be dumb, deaf, and blind. Don't be naive. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves because the enemy is subtle. And there's churches that are offering yoga classes. And, and again, I have friends that I know that their wives practice yoga and so forth, and I'm not out here to criticize anybody, but you just have to understand it is a slippery slope that leads someone into the occult or into the New Age movement, especially in this day and age in which we are living, where anything and everything is tolerated and acceptable except for a Bible-believing Christian man, woman, or young person. As a matter of fact, in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 19, and verse 31, Moses says this, Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits, and do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. In Leviticus 20, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses again, saying, You shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever of the children of Israel... Or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech or offers his children to Molech, human sacrifice, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given some of his descendants or offspring to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. Remember, Ahaz was offering his, the king of Judah was offering his own children as sacrifices to Molech. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. He says, and if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Molech and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And so it's not for Christians to be going to fortune tellers, psychics, astrological readings, palm readings. This stuff is rampant, if you weren't aware in our culture today. Rampant. The uh, practice of the occult. Uh, Even witchcraft. 
the ancient practice of witchcraft with spells. I remember reading an article out of the LA Times about a year and a half ago. They said the fastest growing religion in America is not Christianity. It's witchcraft. Is the fastest growing religion in America, this would have been in probably 2018, it's probably worse today, is witchcraft. And these are real witches who are practicing witchcraft, spells, casting spells, and doing concoctions, and, you know, calling down uh, spirits and things like this. Um, I saw a documentary uh, a while ago on ayahuasca, this drug that's coming out of the Peruvian rainforest that's permeating our culture. People are going from the West all the way to Peru uh, to take this uh, DMT mind-altering drug that is a hallucinogenic, the strongest, most powerful hallucinogenic uh, known to man that's not created in a lab is this ayahuasca, and people are seeking this stuff all over the world, even here in America. They have churches in Florida where they say that the ayahuasca is their holy sacrament, and they have medicine men and chanting and, you know, shaking their little beads and chanting, and then they drink their ayahuasca, and then they get sick. They say it tastes like, like dirty feet. They say it's the most disgusting thing you'll ever taste. That should be your first warning sign not to put it in your body. So it tastes like dirty feet, dirt, and mud. But you drink it, then you throw up like crazy, and you just vomit and vomit and vomit. Doesn't it sound wonderful so far? Throwing up your guts, literally, and then you go into this mind-blowing altered state of consciousness where you fly through space and you talk to demons, or spirits, they say, enlightened ones, and they get information and secret knowledge and secret wisdom. And then the ayahuasca calls people back to go and do it again and again and again. Uh, and it's all a deception of the enemy. The Bible calls it pharmakia, sorcery, witchcraft, which is prevalent and rampant in our culture today. It ought not to be the case for Christians or the children of God. He says in verse 27, uh, a man or a woman, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or who has a familiar spirit shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. That's how serious it was in ancient times. God said, don't even allow them uh, to uh, dwell with you. Uh, get rid of them. It's like a cancer. It's going to spread. They're going to lead you astray to worship other gods and lead you away from the true and living God. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 9, we read this, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the uh, abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, offering them as a human sacrifice, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of the abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. The warning is again and again and again. And you know the Church of Satan was formed right here in California in the 1960s by Anton LaVey in San Francisco. And the Satanic Church is one of the fastest growing religions uh, in America as well, the, the Church of Satan. Do you know that in certain places, in city council meetings, Satanists are praying at the beginning of city council meetings in the name of Satan. They're praying to Satan. They say that if you're going to pray to Jesus, we're going to pray to Satan. And these city councils allow them to because of the freedom of religion. Uh, and they are, they are just opening Pandora's box 
to bring down all of these demons and this wickedness uh, upon our land. And we see our country is literally coming apart at the seams as a result. Once you get the genie out of the bottle, you can't put it back in the bottle. We are opening doors we never should be opening to the spiritual realm uh, in, our, in our generation. Wrapping up here, chapter 8, verse 21, Isaiah says, They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and they will see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. These are those who are seeking after mediums and, and, and wizards and seeking the dead on behalf of the living. In the end, they were going to be judged by God. In the end, they were going to be carried away captive by the Babylonians. And the people then were going to curse their kings and they were going to shake their fist at God and curse the God of Israel. Jesus uh, uh, came to give us life. He came to give us life and life more abundantly. Moses said, I set before you death and life. Choose life. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. And every day we decide when we wake up in the morning, today I'm going to live for Jesus. Today I'm not going to live for this world. I'm not going to live for the flesh. I'm not going to live for the devil. I'm going to live my life for Jesus. And uh, I pray that you all finish well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises in your word. We thank you, Father God, that you came to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the life that you've given us. We thank you for the days and the years that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to number our days. Help us, Lord, to live in a way that's pleasing to you. And help us, Lord God, to reach many in these last days for Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray that you would come quickly for your church, Lord. Come and save us from what is coming upon this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. you all. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, Email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.